when I, uh, I graduated from high school, I won't say the year because it'll date me a little bit, but in going to college, I, I wanted to kind of follow in my mom's footsteps. She was a, a teacher, and I decided that I, I wanted to have a history degree, so my major was in history. I had a minor in physical education. Uh, I wanted to coach and do some work there, but um, history was one of those topics that we did a lot of reading and a lot of papers. I remember we'd get an assignment and three, four days later, you'd have to have a five page, uh, you know, written assignment back to the teacher. And uh, it was a lot of work. High schoolers, do they still give assignments like that out? Any teachers here? We don't know, guess not. <laughs> but what if this were a college classroom today? And what if I threw a question as an assignment out to you this morning and just said, you, know, you only have to write a quarter page. Let me throw a question on the screen. Here it is. Why did Jesus come to earth? What would you write in that quarter page? Just a couple sentences. Now, what if I did this? What if I handed out another four pages of college rule, and you had to take your pencils, and I said this. You know what? Now that same question, you have to fill up four pages. What would you put down? Ushers, you want to bring the papers down here? We're going <laughs> to... No, we won't make you write. But let me ask you this. I'm going to put a verse up on the screen and when you thought of that, what, why did Jesus come down? Was this a part of this? First John 3, look at Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practice righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Was that a part of your answer, your thinking, as to why Jesus came down? Turn with me to the book of Mark. We've been, if you're new here, we've been walking through this book. We're in chapter 9 here, and I'm going to warn you today, we're just going to spend just a snippet on the first 13 verses. And this is the transfiguration. And you understand that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to a high mountain, and he reveals himself, and the Father reveals himself in a way that it adds certainty to who Jesus was for Peter, James, and John. But let me just look at one verse here. Look at Mark verse nine, chapter 9, verse 7. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. Now, if this was a mountaintop experience like no other, Literal one. But think about hearing the voice of God coming out of that cloud, and he tells Peter, James, and John, he says, there's three pieces to that of what he reveals. He says, this is my son, and this idea that I love my son, whom I love. Uh, I wish I could go into that because there's much there. But then the third one, listen to him. And a commandment that says, listen to him. Now, I think if that was me, or maybe it'd be us collectively, if, that, if we were on that mountain, would not that reinforce 
the authority and the divinity of who Jesus really was. So I would encourage you, maybe you want to dig into that text on your own a little bit, but we're, we are going to skip over it. I'm going to go to the next passage, but I want to go back to that first John text again. And that question, do we understand that there's a battle out there? Matter of fact, when you got up this morning, you got dressed or you took a shower, and did you ever pause for one moment this morning and, and, and maybe think about this? I might be headed into a spiritual battle today. And maybe if we believe that, would we even say, maybe I need to put on some spiritual armor today? Let me put Ephesians 6 on the screen. This is a reminder to us this morning. It says this, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Look at verse 16, and in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. This connection between faith and what Satan is throwing at us. See, every day there are spiritual battles that go around and that are in the spiritual realm, which I think at times we, we tend to ignore. And he's, Satan is throwing these darts at the world, at us. Are we aware of that? Now this story that we jump in today, there's battles in the spiritual realm that are taking place here this morning. And it reminds us again that Satan is alive, he's active, now, I've dealt with this before, some of the pieces before, a couple months ago when we were in another passage earlier in Mark. But look at Mark 9, verse 14, to begin the story. And when they came to the disciples, which would have been the Peter, James, John, and Jesus, okay, coming off the mountain, they saw a great crowd around them, the other nine disciples, and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and they ran up to him, being Jesus, and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Now here, the story begins. Coming off that mountain, coming down, and seeing a group of people in heated debate. Now, we're not going to look at the text quite yet, but in verse 18, the debate was centered on at least in partial, the disciples couldn't heal this demon-possessed man, or this demon-possessed boy, actually. And I can be pretty certain that as they couldn't do this event, couldn't cast out that demon, that the scribes were going after those nine disciples. And I think they were kind of taking a knife to the disciples and say, hey, where's your power now? Where's your buddy Jesus? Not doing it, are you? See, I think they looked for trying to diminish those disciples and diminish Jesus. And my hunch is that these nine disciples, that they weren't backing off as well, and they're arguing with the scribes. 
And, and I think we have to admit when you stop and think about arguments and how they really are often in the spiritual realm, just from attitudes, from whatever, and, and you have two groups of people going after each other, and I can almost be certain that the scribes, they weren't looking at the crowd and the disciples and going, oh, to move these people toward God. I don't think that was their motive, nor the nine. Do we really believe that the nine had already developed this attitude like Colossians 1.28 to present each other complete in Christ? Were they looking to present the scribes complete in Christ? I go, I don't think so. They were looking to win the argument. An application jumped into my mind this week as I studied it. And just a reminder, a quick reminder, a reality of spiritual conflict. People are often quick to condemn and slow to love. Isn't that true? See, both sides going after each other. We want to win the argument. And oftentimes in that battle, I don't think they were worried about who was right and wrong. It was who we'd love to win. Now, I know that that's never happened to you here today. You've never been in an argument where you want to win, right? Okay, it's happened to me one or two times. Okay, well, my son's here. I guess better be careful because it's probably been a whole lot more than that, even without, between the two of us. Okay, but there's that battle, that tension within us, and that's the setting, wanting to win. But let me keep going in the story. Look at verse 17, and someone from the crowd answered him. Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So here's a father bringing his son to, to, to his disciples. And guys, would you... Would you cast out this demon? I've heard some rumors that you have power over demons. And he find that the disciples, those nine disciples, had absolutely no power over that demon. But i got to remind you, this um, battle includes more than the demonization of a boy. Recognize this, that Satan was still at work, even behind the scribes looking to feed lies and distortions about who Jesus was, looking to goad him on. Their goal was to destroy Jesus, the same goal that Satan had. But look at the response of Jesus in the story. Verse 19, and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Think of this scene here. The demon recognized Jesus and puts that boy on the ground, foaming at the mouth. Convulsions were happening. But here's where i got to point something out, that this was a little, happened since he was a little child. Since a, somewhere, they don't know exactly what that term means, but it's this is one, two, somewhere in there, that this is where it took over this little baby. 
And, and I think there's a warning here, I, I think, for us here even today in that. Because I think at times, the conclusion this week is that we often explain it, demonization, maybe wrong. Because I think we say it like this, is that, you know, the only time that a person can really be influenced in this way by a demon is to actively invite him into your life. But here's the second time in Mark where it doesn't explain any kind of inviting into a person. It took place as a little infant. This little boy wasn't playing a Ouija board to get connected to demonic activity. And I think the warning for us here, even as, as parents and grandparents, is this idea that just because you have a Christian home and that you go to church, that you can't be influenced and that maybe your children can be influenced in a demonic way more than we realize. So I, I think there's a caution in that. And I think a lot of people within the churches today go, hasn't Jesus defeated Satan? But I'd remind you that he's out on bond, and he's not going to be tossed in the jail permanently until Christ comes back. So he's still active, working in this world. And it really leads to a key point there. For your notes, I said this way, Satan is actively working to destroy People who know and don't know Christ. There's physical manifestations in this boy. Looking to cast him into the fire. Walking by a, a lake and trying to drown this little, this little boy. He wants nothing more. Satan wants nothing more than to, to destroy and diminish people and their, even their faith as they put their faith in Christ. But here's where I need to go down a short path and understand that demon possession is not the primary way that Satan works. There's a more frequent way that he actually is active. And I want to show you this because it, the, the way that he's really working is he wants people to believe lies. That is the primary motive and the, the way that Satan works. Look at John 8, 44. Very pointed here. For you are the children of your father, the devil. Now he's talking to the Pharisees. It is a, it's a clash. It's a spiritual battle going on here. And he goes, Jesus goes back after them. And you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Folks, Satan was exposed, when you go back to the Garden of Eden, he used lies to tempt Adam and Eve, or Eve in particular. And they gave in to that lie that they can be like God. And generation after generation after generation, Satan just keeps throwing lies out, hoping that people in this world and those that know Christ would believe those lies. I, I want to throw you a couple of them. I, I think of a lie that is so prevalent in our culture, and it's this. God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be happy. And here's where it ends up going. And, and there's some truth to that. 
but, but the challenge is we, we kind of go, here's where people go, you know what, God is love. So of course God wants me to be happy because happiness and love really go together. But what happens then, Satan whispers, happiness is to trump the scriptures. And it's to trump God's desire for what he wants in our lives in terms of righteousness. See, just a very subtle lie that we buy into. Another one, Satan loves to tell us this. You know what? You really, we really don't need to forgive when someone sins against us. We can hold it. It's okay. And then we come along to Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And Satan comes along and whispers in some way, it really is not that important. Hold on to it. Another lie. Doesn't everybody understand that independence is a God-given right? Our independence and freedom? Folks, I don't know if you realize this again. Independence, the whole nature of independence is what got them kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They were expelled because they said, we can be our own God. We can be independent from God. And yet we hold it up as a virtue. Another lie. I don't need the church. It's just Jesus and me. Folks, that's a lie. That's a lie. Scripture reveals God's heart that we would, be, would be, become the church. We're part of the church. We need each other. But, but catch this. Satan can't force you to sin. But he invites and seduces us to keep believing those lies, and then we choose and we go down that path. He's just looking for us to give all our attention to something else other than God, and he wants to distract us, and he does it by lying to us. Now, I think some think that he's spreading lies to only the unbelievers, and people, that's just not true. He's the father of lies. And I don't know if you realize this, he believes his own lies. You know that he has read chapter the, the end of Revelation? He's read where he's going to be thrown into a pit, but he doesn't believe that. Why? Because at the very so there is no truth in him. He believes that he can still win against God, and he is looking, believing that he can win this battle in this world and set himself up as the ultimate authority. He believes it because he is a liar and the father of lies. But i got to go to another point here this morning in this text. And this one's on the surface. It's kind of discouraging. But when you dig in and go, this is a great encouraging piece to it. Look at the key point, that second one. Faith and unbelief can be in our heart at the same time. Faith and, and unbelief can be settled within us. Let me show you Mark 9.22. And it is often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if, any, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And then look at the response of Jesus. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. 
You catch it? Here's a man who so wanted to believe Jesus, but he wasn't quite sure that Jesus could heal his son. The disciples had already proved that they couldn't do it. And why should I trust and believe that Jesus is any different? See, this man gives this statement, though, and I think it really, in one sense, is is a more deeply encouraging statement, maybe some of the most encouraging words that we have in Scripture. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. This was gut-wrenching honesty for this father. But I want to show you a quote that I came across in one of the commentaries that I used this week. Look at what he writes on this passage. Among believers, we find few indeed in whom trust and doubt, hope and fear do not exist side by side. Nothing is perfect in the children of God so long as they live in the body. Their knowledge, love, and humility are all more or less defective and mingled with corruption. And as it is with their other graces, so it is with their faith. They believe and yet have about them a remainder of unbelief. Do you catch that? I think of Romans 7, we do that which we don't want to do. There's this element of belief within us, deep belief, and then there's this unbelief that still hangs on the edges. But i got to point out, this belief that we're talking about here is not the little red engine that goes, convince ourselves, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. That's not the kind of belief that Jesus is dealing with here. Understand that this was a father that had to figure out what did he do with his unbelief? And I think it's one of the questions for us. What do we do with our unbelief? And and I think here's some things that I think we should do. And we need to resist it. We need to pray against it. We need to soak up the scriptures and taste of the trustworthiness of God. We need to take it to our Savior. We need to, just like we take our sins and our weaknesses and we cry out to him, deliver us from that. We are to sit at his feet, not just a minute and then leave. We might need to sit at his feet a long time and keep asking him. Keep asking him. Now, i got to remind you of one other piece here because when we ask, when our prayers are directed at him, what if he doesn't answer the way we want? Is our belief defective? Is that what it is? Here's where i got to go to Hebrews 11 again. i got to point something out in terms of success and what we think how, how God should answer. Look at 11.32. Uh, it's a faith chapter. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith, look at this, they conquered kingdoms, they enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight, women received back their dead resurrection. It's like God worked profoundly in that. In faith and believing. But the rest of the chapter, look at the way it goes. 
Some, still filled with faith and belief, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and the caves of the earth. Folks, their prayers on earth were not answered the way they wanted it to be. And yet they're in the faith chapter reminding See, suffering at times, we look at suffering, and I don't have enough faith. And if you think back to last week, we talked about suffering. It's actually God uses it. But look at the rest of the verses here. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised in this earth. Okay? Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they would not be made perfect here on earth, but it would be into eternity. See, suffering, i got to remind you, suffering is not a, necessarily a sign of spiritual weakness or unbelief. But the writer knows that in the request to not where we want to go, faith is ultimately about believing and that God is good and that he has something better, something better, than answering yes to what our prayers might be. See, can we trust and believe God in the hard circumstances of our lives? But I think there's a challenge in our unbelief. I think oftentimes, and I've seen this, is that, you know what, we look to people for sympathy, and we look for people to affirm our wrong beliefs and our unbelief. And, and we want approval in that at times. And I think sometimes God needs to bring people into our lives that are willing to hold up the mirror and go figure out if my belief is really what God wants. Is it real? Is it fake? And God uses people to work in us in that way. But let me keep going in the story. Look at verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he rose, and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, this question, why couldn't the disciples deal with this demon? If you remember back in Mark 6, Something was different for them back then. Mark 6, the disciples were sent out two by two. They were went into the villages, and they had authority. It says they had authority over the demonic realm. And they would heal sick, and people were healed as a result of putting oil on them. Miracles happened there. But all of a sudden, a little while later, no success. Failure. And you go, what happened this time? Now, Understand, Jesus responds in private here, and I, and I think that's important. He wasn't looking to embarrass these guys. And he says, guys, 
this demon, it could only be done with prayer. Now, what's he saying here? Is he saying that this was a Superman demon? Or the Hulk demon? That's more powerful than others? And I don't think so. I really don't. Now, understand what the nature of prayer really is about. Isn't prayer an exercise of faith and dependence on God, believing that he's in control, he's good, and that he's going to answer the way he wants? But there's an exercise of faith in prayer. But it leads to a lesson here for us. And the lesson, that third point there, is this. Spiritual power comes from Christ, not ourselves. See, they had the ability to deal with the demonic world before, back in chapter 6, and they come now, and it wasn't working. And I think they had this attitude that said, we've done this, everybody stand aside, let us have the boy. And nothing, and they failed. They had forgot that spiritual power came from God, not themselves. I found a quote from Tim Keller. He's a pastor and writer. And and look what he says on this passage here. How arrogant, how clueless they are about their inadequacy to deal with the evil and the suffering of the world. The disciples tried prayerless exorcism. For the same reason they couldn't understand why Jesus had to die, they didn't see how weak and proud they were. They underestimated the power of evil in the world and in themselves. Very pointed. I think he's right. But here again, I think they they, they began to get prideful and saying, I'm the source of, of spiritual change. We can do it. But isn't that true in one sense for us? Because one can, you can preach a sermon, you can teach a class, teach your children, and you see people responding spiritually. But folks, God was the, res- was the result. It's why God worked in that. But we can come to the next day and think that we're good enough and that we don't have to depend on the Holy Spirit to work. Folks, disciples were not depending on the triune God. But let me end by putting some questions on the screen, really to, just to close today. For, for us here today, have you ever tried to live the Christian life and tried to grow spiritually in your own strength? Now, I'm not going to define what that looks like, but I have to go check for me. Another question, do you ever try to serve God but forget to pray? Check for me. Look at this third one, a hard one. Do you sometimes feel more sufficient than you really are? Double check for me. See, these questions demonstrate some belief that may be lacking and, and really trusting and, and depending on God for power. See, it's belief that comes up short. 
Now, I understand this issue of unbelief and kind of the lack of faith. There's times, and we'll even see it in days ahead, where Jesus actually rebukes them and laments their faithlessness. But here, on this occasion, he takes them in private, and I think he, he didn't want to do it in public. And he just simply tells them, guys, you're doing it wrong. You tried to deal with the demonic world without me. And isn't that us? See, it points in one sense to a imperfect faith. But I got to tell you, it, it's, we, we can get discouraged by it, or we can look at this picture and go, this is actually encouraging. God wasn't done with these men yet. And we have to stop and say, thank you for a snapshot of what you're wanting to do and realizing we're not there yet. And we have an imperfect belief. Our faith at times is not strong and sometimes it's strong and it's not at the same moment. But here's how I want to end. I just want to put that last verse that the Father, as he talks to the... To Jesus, look at immediately the father of the child cried out and said, Jesus, I believe, but help me in my belief. See, he goes to the one who could actually help him in his unbelief. It wasn't, I think I can't. He, he goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, would you help me? So this morning, or maybe tomorrow morning when you wake up, uh, maybe you need to begin by this. Just thank God for his love for you. And, and thank him that he wants you to experience freedom from the darts of Satan. He, he wants freedom for you in terms of addictions and freedom from selfishness and from sin. That's his desire. But maybe the most important piece of that prayer would be to get on our knees and say this, Jesus, I believe, but would you help my unbelief? Would you give me something to pull me to a new place? Jesus, help me in my unbelief. What if we did that every day this week? We started our day like that. We ask and we look to the person of Jesus to do it. It's not just what we go through the routine. It's, it's saying, Jesus, would you help me believe today? Follow you. Trust you. Would you help me believe that we have a father who is profoundly good and loving? Let's stand and pray.